to end if love remains a unique show spotlighting people ideas science culture and art your host mike lovett, mike lovett. hello rachel thank you so much for that introduction i am indeed mike lovett and i have my co-host today the, the music maestro himself dr Elias. Axel Pedersen, welcome. Thanks for, for doing this again, Elias. Hey, Mike, I'm really excited. We have an amazing guest today, so thanks very much for, for setting this up. Oh, absolutely, and thank you for the connection. This is wonderful. We do have a great guest. We have today um, to, to talk to us, Dr. John O'Connor. Um, John is an Irish pianist and is an artist of the highest caliber. He's been masterly playing the piano for over 40 years and has performed with many of the world's leading orchestras and has several recordings including in, in 2007 and 2008 he recorded the complete piano concertos of beethoven with the uh, london symphony orchestra he is also regarded as one of the most important piano teachers in the world today and in fact will be coming um, to arizona sh shortly to uh, to work with the arizona piano institute doing master classes and and uh, and and working uh doing some 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 things there maybe lisa can touch on that but thank you john so much for your time we're grateful to have you on the show today thank you very much thank you for inviting me wonderful wonderful my, my first ever podcast so <laughs> it's a, we're, 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 we're excited to have you on yeah this is this is fabulous i i've um and I have enjoyed. I've, I've um, you know, watched several of your videos that you've done in the in the past, and and you know, you are a wonderful teacher and a great communicator. So we're we're excited to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start kind of, and, and I I don't know if this question you know will will go anywhere or not, but but I kind of have a philosophical question that I'd like to throw out there and and see where it takes us. Um, you know, the idea of of um, and I love talking to, to artists about this is, is the idea of mu uh, pure music versus program music versus like, um, you know, how, how, how should one maybe think about, about music as it is? Um, and, and maybe let me ask it this way. You know, if we were to come across the works of Beethoven um, and we didn't know who he was, we just, we just came across these works. How would we regard them? Um, and, and, how what what could we learn about Beethoven just through his music, um, and, uh, and and maybe along with that, how much more impactful is it to us that we do know so much about him that we do know the the kind of life that he lived, um, and I use Beethoven because he's kind of an extreme example of his of the way he lived. But what 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 what's your thoughts on that on, on the the music itself that he produced versus the the um, you know the 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 time setting, all the, those other things that go around it? Well, I think that uh, the most enormous example of Beethoven's effect on people is um, just after 9-11, when I was playing, with, I was due to play with an orchestra up in, I think it was Wisconsin. And the organizers called me about the 15th of September that year and said, are you coming to the States? And I said, of course I'm coming to the States. Why am I coming to the States? They said, well, lots of Euro European artists have cancelled because they are afraid of flying. 
And I said, well, you know, I'm Irish and uh, we had this war in Northern Ireland for so long. And right. we really appreciated everybody who came to, to Ireland at that time. And um, I mean, the extraordinary thing was in all that time, no tourist was ever killed. Um, but uh, <laughs> they were very selective in their murdering. But, right. um, you know, we really, uh, so therefore I am, I, I want to go and support the United States and support the American people at this time when they feel under pressure. And I went and we were doing an old Beethoven concert and I was playing the Emperor Concerto. And um, I still, still remember at the end of the concerto, people were standing up and <clears throat> the hall was full and there were just tears rolling down people's faces. I mean, the music affected them so much. Uh, it's rather like when the Berlin Wall fell in 91 and they played the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven and people were there and the music was just spoke to their hearts. And this is what Beethoven's music can do. I mean, if you open your heart and listen to it, it can affect you in the most extraordinary way. And it's something that has affected me all my life um, and will continue to do so. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's absolutely beautiful. That's exactly right. That's a... Uh... Um, and, and even in, to a slightly lesser degree, you know, I, as, as concerts have, have opened up, um, you know, after the pandemic, it's been wonderful to see the reaction of, of how audiences have reacted to live performances and, and, and to hear this music that, that they've loved for so long and be able to hear it live again. It's, 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 it's been an exciting thing to, to see. Yeah, I mean, I think that the music of Beethoven just speaks anyway to, to, to people. Um, I think if you start reading his life story, you become even more amazed at what he achieved, despite having, you know, I mean, he, I think he set out to be possibly the greatest pianist in the world, and maybe by the end of the 1790s he was, but then of course he started to go deaf, and um, he was affected so badly by all of that, um, and uh, I mean, with the result that he wrote this, the Heiligenstadt Testament, so-called in 1802, which is basically a suicide note, um, but he, I mean, he wasn't somebody who went to church all that much, but he had a great belief in God. He had a great belief in nature. He had a great belief in, I mean, looking out at the suns sunsets and sunrises and spring arriving and just all of this thing of nature. He knew that there was a, a supreme being out there who created all of this. And so he decided that, you know, God put him on this earth, obviously not to become the greatest pianist in the world, so you better compose some more. And thanks be to God, he did. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah, that's... yeah I, I wonder too, if um, on Mike's point, if knowing, because, you know, we, we play a lot of Beethoven as we develop as pianists. Of course, it's hard to avoid playing sonatas or even sonatinas or bagatelles. And um, I wonder if knowing about, I mean, it's sort of rhetorical, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, knowing about Beethoven, if, if that affects our interpretation at all, or if we just knew it was by some other composer, you know, maybe equally good, who knows, at that time, if, uh, if that would skew our interpretation. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Oh, I think the more you know about Beethoven, um, the better you will understand the music. I mean, I, I say to my own students that you cannot play Beethoven unless you understand the man. Mm -hmm. uh, you understand what he went through, what, you know, his frustrations, his um, his moods, uh, everything. The, the the you know, I mean, he was a great admirer of Napoleon until such time as Napoleon announced he was a, he was emperor, and then he was furious with him mm -hmm. and tore mm -hmm. 
title page of the Eureka Symphony, but um, uh, he was all for the common man, and yet he was somebody who went to the nobility in, in Vienna and uh, demanded that they give him money to stay in the city. And I mean, he wasn't backwards, but sort of yeah. almost mailing these um, noblemen to, to give him enough money to stay living and to stay living in Vienna. Um, even at the same time as despising the idea that people were not all equal. Uh, no. I mean, all of these contradictions in his life. I, I remember many years ago, I was asked to do, uh, I was invited by the California Piano Teachers Association to be their guest at uh, a weekend convention. And you had to do a recital and a master class and a lecture. And the recital was no problem. I played whatever I played. The master class was no problem. And they said, well, what would the title be of your lecture? And I, uh, I thought very carefully. And I'd been on the jury of quite a lot of international piano competitions at that stage. And I wrote, choosing repertoire for national and international competitions. And the organizer wrote back and said, that's a little bit above the, um, <laughs> of most of our teachers. And I said, oh, these are mostly you know, uh, yeah. let's say teachers of children and teachers of in, in, teach in their homes rather than at conservatories and that sort of thing. So I thought very carefully and I said, okay, um, I wrote, I, and I faxed back because this was before email. I faxed back and I said, well, um, let's say the humor and tragedy in Beethoven piano sonatas. And I immediately got a fax back from the organizer saying, are you serious? And I said, yes, I am. I mean, there is great humor in Beethoven's music. Uh, <laughs> he knows yeah. the 1817 um, uh, lithograph of him, you know, growling around Vienna, looking like a, a really bad old man. Uh, and yet he could have this great sense of humor. So I'm, I gave a, a lecture recital, which included a lot of the humor in, in his piano sonatas. And people just kept on coming up to me after and saying, I didn't know that he had a sense of humor. And I said, well, there you are, he did. Can, can you give us, and so I can definitely think of the tra <coughs> tragedy. <clears throat> there are so many minor pieces, you know, of course, uh, Pathétique and, and uh, Passionata and, and all these that are just so deep and dark. And um, may, maybe there are lights and things in those pieces. There, there are moments, and certainly the second movements are beautiful and glorious and, you know, speak to the soul, if you will. But I wonder if, if you could come up with a ex uh, small example of, of humor versus just light or oh that's beautiful but what what to you might to you might be humorous oh gosh well i mean let's put this way you mentioned the pathetique i mean um Czerny, who was beethoven's student said that beethoven used to play the opening of the last movement of the, the pathetique sonata with great good humor <laughs> and it suddenly changes your view of that completely you know it has you know of course the first movement is tragic is glorious but suddenly, mm -hmm. if you have this last movement, I also um, I, I've been campaigning for years to say the Opus 14, number two sonata in G major should be called Beethoven's Surprise Sonata. I mean, oh. I didn't have a surprise symphony because he has a big chord in the second movement. But mm -hmm. um, the second, the end of the second movement of the, the, the G major sonata, Opus 14, number two, which is theme and variations, ends getting softer and softer and softer and suddenly a fortissimo C major chord. Oh. Um, I often wonder, did he put that in uh, to wake up the audience if they were dropping off asleep after dinner? Um, <laughs> and then the, the last movement opens, and is it in two or is it in three? I mean, it mm. is, this playing around with the rhythm. Um, I also think the F major is an opus 10 number two. Mm. Uh, dun, dun, the, dun, 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 yeah. 
yeah, bum, bum, dum, bum, bum. when it gets to the recapitulation, um, it's in the wrong key. It's D major. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Instead true. of that. Like, yeah. uh, you know, it, like he goes, dum, bum, dum, dum, bum, dum. Is that right? Something wrong there. And then it goes, dum, dum, dum. And then he, he gets back again. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's all of these. <clears throat> there's also the story about, you know, when he, when he premieres the, the, um, Third piano concerto himself, and in those days you had to actually play with music. Nobody ever played from memory, um, and uh, he asked this conductor to turn pages for him. And in fact, he um, had written out, of course, the orchestral parts because the orchestral musicians had to see what they were playing. But he didn't have time to write out the the piano part in full. Oh, so it was basically hieroglyphics that were on the page, <laughs> and this poor conductor was trying to turn pages. Dinner <laughs> Beethoven turned around to him and said, difficult, wasn't it? And he burst out laughing. (laughs) 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 About where he was supposed to take, nothing made sense. So he did have a sense of humor. It it is funny how we we have this image of of different composers, you know, and we're we're so far removed from them and they they become um, icons and and caricatures. And, and, you know, we don't see them as as the real people that they actually were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody said that you know, Mendelssohn, for example, uh, is very unusual in, 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 in musical terms because he was rich. I mean, most composers <laughs> are poor, you know, they have no money. But Mendelssohn was from a very rich family. Uh, and he, so he wrote lots of happy music. Um, scherzos are fantastic. I mean, you listen to the scherzo from the, the string octet or from Midsummer Night's Dream, and you just have to laugh. And there's the scherzo, the E minor scherzo of a piano, which uh, playing as an encore. Mm-hmm. But then eventually he had to write the very essence series, Opus 54, because mm-hmm. to show that he could write serious music. Yeah. You know, he wasn't yeah. just conventional, he was more than that. Yeah, they got to host uh, so many artists in their, in their home, in these soirees and things like that. And so, ma- so many opportunities as kids, he and his sister, you know. So. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if we could switch tracks a little bit. We've been discussing Beethoven. I know, of course, you play... You know, all the classics, meaning the Schubert, Brahms, and, and Beethoven, the sort of Germanic folks. But I wonder if we can head north a little bit, uh, since you've often been associated with uh, with John Field. And, of course, we've I've heard your recordings of the Nocturnes. Um, I've taught a couple. I haven't performed them. But they're sort of the precursors to Chopin. And, and I wonder if you could speak about your affinity for this music and, and what you find great in it, because there's much to, to find. And just give us a little rundown on your experience with John Field. Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, the Nocturnes of John Field are are absolutely glorious. I mean, they're they're rather like uh, Bellini arias in mm-hmm. the sense that very simple melody and a very simple accompaniment, but um, even still, are, can actually touch touch your heart so easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, everybody is taught uh, a John Field Nocturne in Ireland and in Russia mm-hmm. uh, to. T- young pianists how to actually play a beautiful melody and how to keep an accompaniment soft. Mm-hmm. But uh, what prompted me to actually play more and more of him was, was I read a, a British musical lexicon, I suppose when I was in my late teens or something like that, in which kids said that John Field was a pale imitator of Chopin. And uh, let's say that got the Irish up in me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They don't know anything about it because of course John Field invented the nocturne. Yeah. He was the first pe- person who ever wrote them. And 
he published his first nocturnes in, in 1814 when Chopin was only four. four yeah. uh, and um, and they became the rage of Europe. And this was at a time when there was no radio, no television. Uh, and, and yet the word went around that these were absolutely extraordinary pieces. And composers adored them. I mean, Liszt published a, an edition of the John Field nocturnes. Um, Schumann adored them absolutely. Chopin heard them. One of John Field, he was living in Russia at the time. And one of his Polish students went back to live in Poland and played some of his nocturnes. And Chopin heard them and he started writing his nocturnes. And then, of course, everybody started writing nocturnes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're absolutely wonderful. But um, I remember, uh, it, you know, I had started my Beethoven recordings for Telloc Records in the 1980s. And they were very pleased with how everything was going. They were getting great reviews. And eventually Bob Wood said to me, who owned Telloc, he said, Anything else you want to record? And I said, yes, John Field Nocturnes. And he said, what? And I said, I said, yeah, I really do. I mean, a friend of mine, an Irish pianist who I adored, had done them on vinyl records, but nobody had actually done them on CD. Mm. And I said, a CD of John Field Nocturnes. And he said, no, 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 nobody will, nobody will listen to them. No, no, never heard of them. You know, that sort of thing. So it was the 10th anniversary of Telark up in Cleveland, and they asked me to do a... Um, a performance uh, for their 10th anniversary and it was going out live on the local classical music radio station. And they said, would you do three 15-minute segments, one at 10 o'clock, one at 11.15, and one at 12.30? And I said, sure. So I flew up there the night before and we drove past this very, very elegant looking um, shopping mall and um, my driver said to me, that's where you're playing tomorrow. And I said, what? I said, <laughs> and I thought, no, no, obviously the, the studio is in the shopping mall somewhere. <laughs> right. uh, Next morning, Bob Woods came and collected me, and I said, Bob, where am I playing today? And he said, oh, didn't I tell you? I said, no. <laughs> he said, um, you're playing in a, well, it's, it's a shopping mall. It's a very nice shopping mall. It's a very up. <laughs> it, you're, you're kidding. I'm not playing in a shopping mall, am I? He said, well, yes, you are. And you said you do it. So, um, <laughs> and you're here. <laughs> and you're here. And went along. And uh, so... I looked at this and it was a very nice shopping mall, but of course, you know, they suddenly, Bob Conrad, who was the host, said, and what are you going to play first? And I said, I'm going to start with the Haydn Sonata, very upbeat and for 10 o'clock in the morning. So I sat down and I started playing and people were wandering around that lady and uh, one of the ladies working in one of the shops behind me came out and said, hey, this is nice. Gee, I hope they have this every Saturday. This is fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one, people were wondering, this was going out live on Classic Music Station. And huge listener. And um, people were wandering by, and I, I was having to keep concentrating on this. So eventually, I, I there was a man sitting in the corner somewhere, and I played to him. I just locked out everybody else, and I played this matter just to him. And halfway through the, the slow movement, his wife came along and said, Harry, I'm finished, and he stood and he left. You know, and I thought, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, so I, I finished that, and um, for the 11.15 segment, they said, what are you going to play? And I had been planning to play one of the Beethoven sonatas, which I was about to record for Telarc. And I thought, this is no good at 11.15 on a Saturday morning in a shopping mall. <laughs> yeah. So um, I went to Bob Conrad and said, I'm going to play three John Field Nocturnes. And uh, he said, OK, OK. So I played three John Field Nocturnes. And people came up to me afterwards and they said, wow, that is fabulous music. That is, have you recorded it? And I looked at Bob <laughs> and he gave me a knowing look. <laughs> <laughs> It all went away and during the 
the break before I played next time, he came over to me and said, you did that on purpose, didn't you? And I said, of course I did. <laughs> yeah. I said, do you want to record them? He said, we'll talk about it later. And then he came over to me and said, one of the reasons I asked you to do more uh, Beethoven recordings is I, I was amazed at your recording of the Moonlight Sonata. Would you play it for the 12.30 segment? And I said, sure. So I sat down at 12.30 and I played the Moonlight Sonata, including the last movement, which is about as far, I keep on saying to audiences, as far from moonlight as you can get, it's more like a hurricane. Right. But, uh, anyway, and his daughter, who was aged about four, came over and stood right beside my right hand and looked up at me all the way through the last oh. one. I, thought, I can't stop, it's going out live on radio. You know, yeah. and I, anyway, I played the whole thing and I finished. Oh, we went to lunch and um, I said to Bob, I said, what about field? And he said, if I tag on two extra days to your next Beethoven recording in three months' time, could you do a CD in two days? And I said, yes. So I did. And Jack Renner, who was the other owner of Telarc, who did all the technical stuff, he, well, I, I, Jack, miss him. He died about two years ago now. He, he got about five Grammys for best recording, um, classical recordings sound. But anyway, Jack wandered around and he kept on saying, it's very nice, but nobody will buy it. And then they issued the recording and it spent 10 weeks in the Billboard Top 10 selling CDs. And suddenly they phoned me up, any more music where that came from? You know, and since then, you know, people still listen to the Field Nocturnes and lots of other people have recorded Field Nocturnes. I mean, I was, mm -hmm. mine was the only recording. So I'm delighted that he is well known and that I keep on saying he's the guy who invents the Nocturne. He is the number one, you know, everybody else that follows on from Field. Yeah. So, oh, good friend, about the only Irish composer that's, you know, definitely going to live forever in music history. Yeah. Well, he, he's represented here in Arizona. Occasionally, we do hear your recordings on Kapok of the field oh. and some of the uh, Beethoven sonatas. I think I've heard your Wallstein on there and uh, maybe a Passionata um, on the radio yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder, so do you, do you have a favorite um, field nocturne or a few favorites? And then I also want to get into, I know... You know, you teach uh, a lot, and actually I know many of your former students, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on maybe teaching in general, or we'd love to hear what you think about teaching in general, and maybe how you yeah. would teach something like a, sh uh, a field nocturne or a Chopin nocturne or a sonata by Beethoven, and, and would that change and sort of open-ended? Well, I've always loved teaching. I mean, I started teaching when I was in first year in college because my parents were so much against me doing music. Mm. My mother paid for my university education. It was deep enough in Ireland at the time, but I had to do everything, play for ballet classes and play for singers and play for every instrumentalist around and teach piano just to keep the money coming in. Um, and I, I, I was determined to make it fun for people because I think uh, piano teachers are underrated in many ways. Um, mm -hmm. I think they have a lot to give. As I keep on saying, to when I was director of the Royal Irish Academy of Music in Ireland and at the beginning of every year, I would say to all the teachers of the school, I said, do not try and turn your students into performers because um, you have to actually give them a love of music that they will have for the rest of their lives. Yes. The ones who want to become performers, you can encourage. Um, but I, I've seen too many 40-year-old piano teachers who should have been told at the age of 18, you know, keep your love of music and do something else that makes more money um, and still i've actually produced a lot of teachers in my own life and uh, i've encouraged many people to take up music because it's it's a great life but teaching piano is it's like opening a door 
to, to a young man or young girl and giving them a, a present that they will have and treasure for the rest of their lives. Um, I, I, I can't stand piano teachers who wrap their students over the knuckles with a pencil if they play a wrong note, which has been known. I mean, when I was in high school in Ireland, um, the guys used to come up to me and say, are you still playing the piano? And I said, yes. And they said, my God. I... And they would all have these horror stories of piano, piano teachers who were giving them a bad time. And hopefully, I've, I mean, I think once or twice, my students have burst into tears because they get frustrated with something. But most of the, I remember I burst into tears one time with a fabulous teacher. I was just so frustrated that I couldn't get what he, I knew he wanted and I couldn't do it. But um, I think that, you know, my problem at present is that all my ex-students tend to get in, are still in touch. So my email is yeah. Yeah. full. And what a blessing. I, but that's a good, that's a good reflection on you that you, do remain in touch and have shown great support. I know the students of yours that I've spoken to have have said that uh, they feel very supported. Well, it also sounds like like you're you're using music as a conduit to you know raise boys, raise girls. Like it, it's 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 more of uh, you know trying to use the use the the love of music that that's going to be a lifelong passion versus as you said you know versus you know necessarily going into the the performance and the um, yeah, the, the technical aspects, like the, finding that love, I think is, is really one of the most important things in any endeavor. Absolutely. I mean, I think you have to teach kids to love the music and don't try and sort of make, turn them into virtuosos um, uh, unless they want to. If they want to, then push them by all means. Mm, yeah. Because they're frustrated if you don't push them. But um, I think that that's, you know, the first time they actually produce a sound on the piano that's really beautiful. And you say to them, that's beautiful, do it again. Right. And, and work out in their arm which muscles worked out and how do they actually use their arm to produce that beautiful sound. I mean, I still remember my teacher when I was very young in Ireland. And he said, when you produce a good sound, um, do it a second time. Well, if you do it a second time, do the same thing with your arm that you did. it, And then do it a third time. And if you do three times in a row, then you, have, you can do it for the rest of your life. And he said, you have to, he, he made a joke of it. He said, you know, you have to realize, oh, you want me to use that sound. That means I have to use muscle number 75 and number 33 in my mm -hmm. arm to use that sound rather than muscle number 22 and 80, <laughs> whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a joke, but actually I've never forgotten it because it's right. You have to actually work out in your own arm what your arm can actually needs to do to produce an absolutely beautiful sound. And we're all different. I mean, the difficulty about teaching piano is my arm is different to every single one of my students' arms. Mm -hmm. So you have to actually let them work out how they actually feel physically to produce an absolutely beautiful sound. And then they'll have it for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So, yeah. so I assume, um, I mean, you're, you're working at a very good school and you've worked at many good schools before with quite high level students. And, yes. um, and so you're, you're getting people, I, I think, that are already on that track and really love it and have been convinced for the most part, maybe their parents pushed them and they're at a university because they have to, but typically they really uh -huh. do love it already. Um, so I wonder if, if you find a difference or if you've taught a lot of kids who maybe, you know, don't, don't know what that is yet and their parents come in and say, you know, we, we don't want our son or daughter to really be serious about music. It's just for fun. I, I, first of all, I always tell them, well, do you go to your football coach or soccer coach and say, oh, we don't really want them to play all that much. We just want them to have fun. You know, don't don't put them on the field uh, so much. But anyway, 
I, I wonder if, um, you know, getting that love of music and, and finding that balance and pushing them and encouraging them is different for uh, a younger student versus an older, you know, university or, or a master's or doctoral student um, in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I still miss teaching young kids. Um, I, I, when I when I started teaching in Ireland, um, after I went back to live in Ireland after my time in Vienna, um, I had lots of students, and normally between the ages of 10 and 17. Cool. And um, I, I loved teaching them, and we became great friends. A lot of them are still friends. I mean, some of them, when they got to the, you know, choosing what should they do in university, and I would say to them, you know, what are you going to do? And they would look at me and say, I'm going to do music. Um, and I knew that they would never make it as a pianist. So I say to them, the, the, you know, just before they go there, the Irish equivalent of the SATs, I would say, will you enjoy teaching piano for the rest of your life? And they saw my lifestyle, that I was traveling around the world and I was doing lots of concerts and all the rest of it. And that's what they wanted. But I said, you don't want it badly enough. You don't practice. You're not talented enough. You will end up teaching piano. If that's what you want to do, I would encourage you. But if you think you're going to do something else, look at your life and do something else. And they've gone on, you know, it's great. One of them is now, he's become extremely rich. And so I made him uh, um, chairman of the board of the Dublin International Piano mm. Competition. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, so I use them for money. Right. <laughs> I have no plan. You, know, you, are, you are Beethoven at heart, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it's... There's, there's something wonderful. I mean, I, I'm very pleased that, you know, one of the things I used to teach when I was starting to teach cantabile playing, I would try and encourage all my students to play a, a Mendelssohn song without words. I think they're wonderful pieces mm. for 13, 14, 15 year olds. And they can produce, uh, and we used to make up the words together. That's fabulous. And, I mean, they were probably the most modern, rubbishy um disgusting looking things they certainly were not not Yeats or Shakespeare or anything like that but um we would make up the words so that they would realize where the phrase was going and how to finish off a phrase and how to whisper a phrase as well as how to be passionate in a phrase and we would use the words for that my great advantage is that all of those people are now in their 50s and 60s and when we wrote out the words for them to memorize so they could produce these beautiful sounds I took the words back from them so they can't blackmail me with the rubbish <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> very clever on my part and I'm glad that I was <clears throat> yes but i mean it, it it showed them how what a phrase could do what a musical phrase could possibly be um, and uh, i loved that i really enjoyed it tremendously um i also you know enjoyed teaching lots of different composers in different ways i would mm. talk talk you know but i would make them realize who who composed it and what they were like you know mm -hmm. the very fact chopin never played loud up in mezzo forte in his life and that um he went to the opera all the time that mozart went to the opera all the time you have to play a mozart sonata as though you're doing a, a, a singing an operatic area and things like that you know mm -hmm. i mean it, yeah it's different it, it, it expands the horizons as regards music as well yeah. oh wonderful it, it's I, interesting oh go ahead mike yeah. Oh, well, I was going to move in a, in a little bit different direction. I was, um, I was going to ask, I know, I know you're well known um, as a solo artist and as a, as a teacher, but I also um, have understand that you, you do love um, the collaboration and doing chamber music and, and, and working with other musicians. Talk about, um, and, and, and I do, you know, I love classical music, but I also love playing jazz and playing in combos and doing those, those sorts of things. 
Um, so that collaboration speaks to me. So when you're when you're working with other artists and, and doing uh, uh, chamber music and such, can you talk about, about that relationship and, and what you enjoy about that? Well, I think the, the most difficult thing about being a pianist is you practice on your own. You travel on your own. You sit in a hotel room on your own. You go out on stage on your own. It can be a very lonely existence. You have to actually like yourself pretty well to be able to live that. And some people have not been able to succeed in that respect. Uh, the great thing about playing chamber music is you were, you were with other people and you can have fun. You can go out and have a meal together. You can travel together and uh, you can discuss ideas. You can bounce ideas off one another as let's do a crescendo there. No, let's do a diminuendo or whatever. Um, let's make this more dramatic or let's play this piece. No, I don't like that piece. Let's do something. That sort of thing. I think that's wonderful. Um, I think that every pianist should... Uh, company singers because uh, I one of my greatest experiences in my life there was a very very famous Irish um, soprano Veronica Dunn who was in Covent Garden in the 1950s she only died last year at age 93 um, I started she was great friends of Joan Sutherland they, they were young uh, sopranos together in Covent Garden and um, Ronnie's husband um, swept her off her feet brought her back to Ireland and said you're not to sing anymore because you've got to bring up your two children which started a very tempestuous relationship. But she sat, she taught singing and was fabulous, has taught many fabulous singers. Um, I started, my teacher brought me to play to, for, for her singers um, when I was 17 and said, his sight reading is terrible, throw everything at him, it's good for him. Um, and she did. And uh, I just became devoted to Ronnie. And uh, I used to go up to her house on a Sunday at 10 o'clock in the morning and stay there until 10 o'clock at night. Uh, and she would eventually put a steak on the on the grill and give me a glass of wine, which I thought was terribly exciting when I was 18. Um, but I mean, I learned so much about how a singer breathes, how a singer phrases, how they color their 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 um, sound to the words uh, that they're singing. Um, and I've, I'm, I think every pianist should play for singers to realize that, providing they can actually sit in on the singing lesson of a great teacher. So they realize how a singing teacher can actually mold um, the sound of a singer. And then you can transfer that to the piano. I think all of these things are terribly important um, to the making of pianists. It's not just sitting there practicing hand and exercises endlessly um, to, to make your play faster and louder than everybody else, but mm -hmm. to actually and say something. Mm -hmm. Well, on, on that note too, we're, we're very excited. So uh, Mike kind of mentioned this and, uh, John is is coming to Arizona in about uh, well less than two weeks now uh, to, right. perf to perform for the Gold Canyon uh, series and he's doing a solo recital um, of Beethoven um, and then he's going to be giving a lecture recital and a master class for a few students that we are providing through Arizona Piano Institute and we're just Really excited! I we hope that anybody listening to this can uh, can come and join us and and listen to the great artistry and, and also great teaching. We're really excited to hear that as well. So, um, just wanted to throw that out there. I should say that that uh, my recital. I was going to do an old Beethoven recital, and then Jack Cooper was oh. organizing it. He said, "Could you do some field as well?" So I'm that's right. I forgot you're uh, doing field on there. And then on the lecture, that's on the 18th of, of November. Yes. And then on the 19th, I'm doing this lecture recital and I'm going to be talking about the development of the nocturnes. So I'll be playing nocturnes by field, by Chopin, by Scriabin, by 
Great. Yeah. Oh, oh, are you doing the left hand? Not that? Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. Good. Okay. One of my favorites. Oh, okay. it's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Very difficult, but I uh, love it. Yeah. Wonderful. We'll, we'll, we'll put links too in our in the podcast so people can kind of find out and and uh, certainly they can easily find you online and um, yeah we, we just want to get the word out there this is great. Okay. Absolutely. Well, and 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 thank you so much. Our our, our time is short. I, I appreciate you so much coming on the show, John, and and uh, and it's you've been an absolute delight to, to have on. Thank you so much for joining us on And of Love Remains. Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Elias. Uh, it was a great pleasure. You are listening to And of Love Remains. First of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. We're trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization.